Hey everybody, this is Ray Telsh, and this is episode 35 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie, selected specifically by our guest, that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. Welcome back. Hope everybody is having a good week out there. Uh, having a kind of a rough one myself. The last couple of days have been a, a little emotional, I guess you could say. Uh, as many of you know, I was a teacher prior to where I am now in life. And as such, I have a lot of friends on Facebook and social media who are former students or fellow teachers. And right now should be a time of celebration for those people. It's the end of the school year. Many of them have reached the, the end of their academic journey, or at least that stage of their academic journey. And yet, because of the situation in the world, um, they're not able to celebrate the way that they would. And it's, it's a little heartbreaking to see uh, friends and former students who are ready to graduate not really getting to celebrate that achievement, uh, to see teachers reaching the end of the school year and not able to really say their goodbyes to their students and have the closure that normally comes at the end of the school year. Uh, and on a personal level, you know, this was supposed to be the week that my son finished up fifth grade and, and moved into middle school. And that has also been kind of anticlimactic compared to the celebration that we much rather would have been able to have for him. So it's been a little raw. And yet on top of that, that we're, we're moving to the next stage of this quarantine or shelter in place. And, and that's a good thing. Things are supposed to be opening back up, but we need to do it cautiously. And I see how some people are acting about this and the the carelessness that's going on out there and it just it makes me so angry and i'm kind of tired of being angry about this and i just i personally don't know how to fix that so sorry the episode's running a little late this week i'm kind of dealing with juggling some emotions this week and I'm sure some of you are wondering, okay, how does how does Rafe transition this from this emotional confession to talking about a movie? And that's actually not that challenging because my guest this week is actually a teacher. And one of the things we talk about in the introduction to the episode is how she's dealing with having to teach via distance. Uh, so it, it is a little relevant to the conversation. But, of course, the conversation is about a movie, and this week we're talking about The Beatles' A Hard Day's Night from 1964. Uh, you'll notice I'm kind of just going straight into the movie introduction. We did have a Friday inquiry last week uh, on social media. I just, I'm tired. I'm not going to go into it during this week's episode, but I do invite you to check that out. Lots of zombie movie recommendations. But for now, I just kind of want to get into the movie. Um, now, I had not actually seen this movie before Lindsay Stamhuse, who's this week's guest, uh, brought it up for the show. And if you're in that same boat and you're a fan of cinema, I do recommend seeing this. It is definitely worth a look, uh, not only for itself, but also for the influence that it has on many other movies out there. Uh, another thing that Lindsay and I do discuss over the course of the episode. So here we go. Uh, Lindsay and I discussing 1964's A Hard Day's Night. 
so my regular listeners know that I was a teacher for 10 years. You're a teacher as well. I am. That's correct. So I teach junior high here in uh, Alberta, Canada. And um, yeah, it's kind of different than I think maybe you experienced back in back in the day. Now we're doing all this virtual learning because of the pandemic and everything. So it's it's a little bit tricky, but I love it. Yeah, I was going to ask how that was going for you, because I know that's got to be a challenge for a lot of teachers out there. It really is. It's 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 a challenge, but it, I mean, I think we're rising to that challenge. So it's it's been difficult to engage with students and you're missing that one-on-one FaceTime that you normally would get with them, especially now at the end of the year when you know your kids and it's, and it's ex- an exciting time of the year. Um, but I think... Overall, it's it's as good as we could expect it to be. This is it's it's a new adventure, I guess, is how I'll put it. So. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, when I when I was teaching, especially towards the end of my tenure, I was practicing uh, a concept that was going around at the time called flipping the classroom. Okay. So I like to think that I would have done well with this new paradigm if I was still teaching right now. I mean, I don't know because I'm not experiencing it, but uh, my heart goes out to you because you are, as you said, you're, you're missing kind of the best part of the year because now you know your kids and now you get to, you know, enjoy what's left of the school year and you're not getting that. Exactly. So yeah, like having, I had some meetings this morning, like Google meet is how we're, we're kind of meeting with our kids. So it's like, virtual classrooms. I'm doing virtual cahoots with my grades uh, sevens and eights and like doing like read, read alouds, but I'm reading to the camera. It's very strange, you know? So it's just a very different situation, but yeah. uh, Yeah. It's going. So. Well, good luck to you on finishing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So you're a huge Beatles fan. I am. Yeah. It's kind of embarrassing how big a Beatles fan I am. So how does that come about? Well, I, uh, my dad and my mom are both music fans. I think most people are music fans, but my dad was a big Beatles fan. And so I kind of grew up with it. I didn't have a choice in the matter, but I grew up <laughs> <laughs> from a very young age. I grew up with the Beatles music and I had um, their lyrics memorized. I had albums. I had, you know, as a five-year-old, I had records, like vinyl records. And so um, it, it kind of just bloomed from there. Um, but like I said, I didn't have a choice. It, it was kind of bred in me as a as a very, very young child. <laughs> I'd, I'd almost say you did have a choice because I know a lot of kids rebel against that at a certain point. Like I know growing up, you know, my mother was a huge Michael Jackson fan. And wow. I reached a point in my teenage years where it was like, Michael Jackson sucks. And it wasn't that I actually didn't like his music. It's just that I was kind of rebelling against what my parents liked. Yes. And that definitely happened with me. Uh, My teenage years as well. It was around like late nineties. So like the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC were very popular. And so that became like my music. And my dad was just, both my parents were just rolling their eyes at me at how much I liked it. But it wasn't that I was rejecting the Beatles so much. It was more like I'm asserting my own identity. And eventually I came back to, you know, liking the Beatles as much as, or more, really than anything else. But there was that brief flicker of about five years where I was just like, nope, nothing my parents like is good enough. So I'm just going to reject that entirely. So now, now, is there a part of you that looks back at that time period and cringes at the fact that you ranked Backstreet Boys above the Beatles? Oh, hell yes. Oh my God. It's <laughs> awful. When I think about it, like, I still like it. The music is great and it's fun and, you know, to dance to, but in terms of like 
the layers and the the musicality of it, like the Beatles are so much better. I feel so silly when I look back on that. Well, we all go through that at some point, I, I guess. So, yeah. <laughs> so beyond the movie we're discussing today, what kind of movies do you usually like? What's what's your interest area? Um. Well, David Lynch is one of my favorite directors, and I like a oh. lot of the stuff that comes from that kind of surrealist area, which is very different in a weird way. It's it's similar. There's some surrealist uh, stuff going on with Dick Lester and and his films, and he was the director of A Hard Day's Night. So maybe there's some overlap there, but definitely like that side of things. I like that auteur um, filmmaker angle a little bit more. Um, I've always been a big fan of rom-coms too. So I've, I kinda, I'll watch anything. Let's be real. Anything that's not <laughs> super gory, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of where my, my other interests lie. So. Gotcha. Cool. Okay. So the concept of have not seen this is you usually are picking a movie. Uh, you're disappointed when you find out other people haven't seen. <laughs> what are your have not seen this movies? What are movies you haven't seen that other people are shocked when they find out? I have never seen the Godfather. And that's one that people are like, what? How have you not seen The Godfather? Because, and I think it's because I'm so, I'm so squicked out by, by gore and blood and violence and stuff that I, I'm just instinctively, I cringe when I think about mobsters and like right. violence that I think is probably going to happen in a film about mobsters. So that's part of the reason why I haven't watched it. Um, another one is Indiana Jones. I haven't seen any of the Indiana Jones films and people yeah, really? lose their minds when they, when they say, when I tell them that, because they're like, these are classic movies and I have no, no excuse for it. I really, with this quarantine, I should get, I should get on it. I should try. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Godfather has come up a surprising uh, amount really? when I've asked that question. Um, but you're the first one to, to say that about the Indiana Jones movies. So yeah, yeah. sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we are talking today about The Beatles' A Hard Day's Night from 1964. Mm -hmm. As you said, directed by Richard Lester, written by Aloon Owen, and starring The Beatles, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Ringo Starr, and Wilfred Bambrill. Yep. We have to throw him in because he plays a really pivotal role in this. He does. Yes, he does. Are you ready? Then brace yourself. Here they are. It's been a hard day's night, and I've been working like a dog. It's been a hard day's night. I should be sleeping like a log. But when I get home to you, I find the things that you do will make me feel alright. You know I work all day to get your money to buy a thing.
So how do you describe this movie to someone who hasn't seen it? Like, how do you sell them on wanting to see it beyond just it's the Beatles? Um, it became a lot easier after the late 90s when Spice World came out because I feel like that movie owes such a debt to not that not that Spice World is an amazing movie or anything, but if you if you have that film in mind and you say, well, it's like that, but in 1964 with the Beatles instead, people kind of get it. And and I think because this film really did set the tone for the 60s and cinema verite and um, in, in British film anyway. And, um, and then with the influence that it had on music videos and stuff, I think you can roll all that in and you can say, look, this is what this film is. If you watch it with an open mind and if you enjoy the Beatles music, I think you'll really like it. So that's how I usually kind of preface it when I'm introducing someone to it. It's fascinating that that's what you kind of went to Mm -hmm. as your selling point, because while I was watching this spice world was one of several movies that came to mind. I I, I had never seen this movie before watching it for the show. Um, My only real experience with the Beatles was yellow submarine as far as the cinematic Beatles. Uh, Of course I know their music. I'm a huge fan of their music, but as far as their cinema goes, the only thing I had really seen was yellow submarine, which kind of, barely counts because it's not actually them, you know, doing the voices there. But as I was watching it, I was thinking how influential a hard day's night was on Mm -hmm. other movies that I have seen, like that thing you do or spice world or, or those kind of things. Like without this, those movies wouldn't exist. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it's kind of shocking to, because I grew up with it. So I never, there was not, there's not been a point in my life where I haven't had that film as part of my cinema language or whatever you want to call it. So it, it really, it's really cool that I got the chance to do this conversation with you because then you kind of step out and you're like, well, yeah, it did influence this, that, and the other. And, and you really can break it down and see it from an outsider's point of view, because um, like I said, I've, it's always been there for me. So maybe I don't see it. Maybe people who have grown up with it, like I did, don't see it as much as somebody's like seeing it from, for the first time from the outsider perspective. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, of course. I mean, you're always going to have a different perspective when you approach something new mm-hmm. than somebody who, you know, how, how many times would you say you've seen this movie over the course of your life? Oh, like <laughs> 30, 40 times, 50 times. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Yeah. So of course I'm going to have a different perspective on it because I, I've never seen it before. Yeah. yeah so that, that's, that's interesting. Okay. <laughs> so why out of all of the movies out there? Cause you, you, you went straight to the Beatles and you yeah. weren't settled immediately on which one you wanted to do, but you knew you wanted to do a Beatles movie. So why, why those just because those are, because you're such a Beatles fan? Um, yeah, I think I, I, I am a Beatles fan obviously. And so that, that definitely does influence things, but, um, I think, especially with this one, because I'm I'm a fan of the Beatles, but I'm also a fan of Richard Lester and his work with the the goons and the stuff that he did. That's like proto uh, Monty Python stuff from the the late fifties. You know that that kind of all blended together, and I'm like, you know, this is a really interesting film on its own. Even if you remove the fact, like, even if the Beatles never went anywhere, I think the film would stand as like a an interesting look at you know, 1960s culture and British culture and that intersection of um, the class 
differences that these Liverpoolians had versus the Southern London, you know, establishment. And there's so much going on with all this absurd comedy that goes on as well. Um, it just seemed like it, it takes a lot of different things and mashes them together in a really fun way. Plus, it's also more accessible, maybe. I think the only thing you really need to have is you, you kind of have to like the Beatles to watch it. I can't imagine someone <laughs> the Beatles enjoying this film. But I think a lot of people, if they like the Beatles or if they at least know of the Beatles, they'll watch it and they'll they'll find something to like about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I have to admit, you know, I was a little hesitant going in. Not not that I wasn't excited about watching it, but it was just like, it's a rock doc- documentary type yeah. film. You know, it's not really a documentary, but it's pretending to be type thing. And my opinion changed literally two seconds into watching it because the first thing that came up when I was streaming it is the Criterion logo. Right. So this movie has been a part of the Criterion collection and they don't usually choose bad movies. Right. Yeah. And I'd forgotten about that until I pulled it out. I have the Criterion Blu-ray edition. So I pulled it out and I'd forgotten that it was a Criterion film. And I was like, yeah, you know that it makes a lot of sense when you when you actually break it down and look at it. it. It does hold up quite well in terms of its staying power, its lasting power in our culture. And like you said, the way it influenced so much else I'd forgotten about that thing you do, which totally, it absolutely influenced that. So yeah, there's just so much going on there. It's, it's a fun film, I think. Yeah. I mean, it definitely wasn't what I was expecting as someone who hadn't seen it before. So like, what, I what, was... what were you expecting? I'm curious to know, like having no inkling of what it was about, what were you, what really were you expecting? Um, well, I was familiar with the um, very iconic presentation of Can't Buy Me Love. Uh-huh. You know, so I was familiar with that. I was familiar that this had um, inspired or spun off, however you want to uh, put it, that, you know, the monkeys, which uh-huh. I, I w- was familiar with the monkeys. So I think I was expecting it to be a little more slapsticky. Yeah. Um, you know, there's always that fear of musicians acting you know they they don't all do it very well right for every eight mile with eminem you have whatever vanilla ice's movie was that everybody wants to forget (laughs) right (laughs) so i was a little skeptical i think from that standpoint and again knowing you know my experience with the beatles was yellow submarine and that's Mm -hmm. not really them acting in it not that that, that's brilliant acting either right um i I think i was just i don't know what i was expecting but this was a lot more serious and yet funny, but not in a slapsticky way. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think also part of it was, it, it was very weird watching this as kind of a snapshot in time, knowing where these individuals would end up going, mm. particularly like John Lennon, yeah. you know, watching him in this movie and thinking about where his life would end up taking him, you know, yeah. the, the, peace movement and you know and of course obviously his assassination and 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 such it it it, there was almost a surreal feeling to watching this as a snapshot in time and knowing how profile these four people are yeah no and definitely that um i think even expanding that watching it this time i i noticed some things about just the 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 snapshot in time of that particular time too so not just these individuals where they've come, where they're going to be going, but like what was going on in London at that time. And, and with, you know, the, like the 
the move from beatniks to this kind of mod rocker type thing and, and swing in London that was kind of just starting up. Like there's just, it feels like a really, like a time capsule and you open it up and then you see like a young George Harrison and a young Paul McCartney. And you see these, like these mod clubs where all these people are dancing and, and it's just, it's such a, it is kind of a surreal thing to experience. And I don't know if that's, I don't get that feeling from any other film that was made around the same time, even other films that I've watched that are uh, Richard Lester films, like the knack and, and uh, how to get it, I think is the name of it. Um, doesn't have that same feeling. So I don't know if it's because the Beatles are so famous. I'm sure that's why, you know, it just feels like you're opening up this time capsule and you're seeing people and things that are so iconic and have become so legendary and, and you're seeing them before all of that happened. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of strange. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think that's a good segue to the kind of the critical eye of this before we really kind of dive into it. It sits at 98% at Rotten Tomatoes and 96% at Metacritic. So I didn't even try to pull in a negative review uh, (laughs) because there there just was no point. I'm sorry if a movie is that high, it's, it's first of all, this old of a movie, it's almost impossible to find it. And secondly, it's usually somebody specifically trying to be negative to get Mm -hmm. attention. So what I did is I pulled in a little longer of a a quote from Roger Ebert's review, because it has a couple of things in it that I I, I hope we can address or Mm -hmm. talk about. Um, So Ebert said, when it opened in September 1964, A Hard Day's Night was a problematic entry in a disreputable form, the rock and roll musical. The Beatles were already a publicity phenomenon. 70 million viewers watched them on The Ed Sullivan Show, but they were not yet cultural icons. Many critics attended the movie and prepared to condescend, but the movie could not be dismissed. It was so joyous and original that even the early reviews acknowledged it as something special. After more than three decades, it has not aged and it is not dated. It stands outside its time, its genre, and even rock. It is one of the great life-affirming landmarks of the movies. And then a little later in the review, he goes on to say, The most powerful quality evoked by A Hard Day's Night is liberation. Hmm. The long hair was just the superficial sign of that. An underlying theme is the difficulty establishment types have in getting the Beatles to follow orders. Although their manager tries to control them and their TV director goes berserk because of their improvisations during a live TV broadcast, they act according to the way they feel. So we kind of just talked a little bit about the idea of them, this being filmed before they were icons. And I think that's kind of what I was saying about knowing where they would go. Mm -hmm. They're not those legends yet when you're watching this film. Right. No, they're, they're, uh, I think the you can see the glimmers of what they could become. And it's kind of, that was really, I, I've never heard that that uh, Ebert quote before, but it seems like, you know, the establishment really wanted them to do this, be this. They wanted them to lose their accents. They wanted, they, they didn't think they'd make it anywhere because they were, they were from the North. They were working class. And yet they did all the things, they, they didn't dub the film. To, I read that somewhere that they wanted to dub the film to make it more palatable to like non Liverpool or non Northern ears because they didn't. They, they wanted to that. dub it for American audiences. They, yeah. The American studio wanted them to change it to like neutral American audience overdub for yeah. when they came here. Yeah. yeah. Which is just wild to me. Cause I don't, I don't know. I didn't have, a, I don't have a problem understanding the accent. I don't know if you, no. did, but it's, it's like, this is part of what made them so appealing was that they were so different and they didn't care. 
they did like what they wanted to do. They made the music they wanted to make and, and they were so successful at it, but they haven't done that yet. They've just kind of started. So you see that individuality, their, their, the streak of rebelliousness, I guess, coming out in, in sequences, like you mentioned, the Can't Buy Me Love sequence, which is just iconic, right? But that, you know, we're out, we're free, we're going to be who we want to be. And, and that, that kind of sums up the sixties really, doesn't it? Right? Like Yeah. 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 I, I kind of have to throw it in your face, though. The idea of them being individualistic yeah. and against the system and then going to Backstreet Boys or sync, which are <laughs> essentially studio puppets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. And, and the irony is definitely not lost on me for that one. <laughs> absolutely not. But that that second part that he talks about the the individualism versus the establishment, mm. you know, that was something I took note of early on in the movie, uh, specifically just when they're in that train. Yeah. And, you know, their manager comes and tells them what to do and they don't want to listen to him and he's going to go get some coffee. Why don't you boys come with me? And they don't want to go with him. And and then that other guy that the train passenger, we never even get a name for him. Yeah comes in and is so dismissive of them because he rides this train twice a week and he wants the window closed and they can't listen to the radio. And they're saying, but there's four of us and there's one of you. Yeah. And they're right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the writing was on the wall already that, you know, I, I fought the war for your sword and I bet you sir, you're sorry you won. Right. Like that whole, like us versus them. This was the one of, you know, there's always been generation gaps, but like that generation gap and the four of them versus one of the old guy, like this is what they were up against. This is what the the establishment was up against and it's what the, the youth were up against, right? So it really does, it feels like it's a microcosm of what was going to, what was already happening, what was definitely going to happen as the decade progressed. Yeah. And I mean, and that was the thing I, I put down was, you know, the age gap is so evident so early in the film, you know, the, the e- even the grandfather, which becomes a completely different story element, mm. uh, you know, the fact that he's there, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that they, they that Paul had to drag him along, yeah. um, you know, that 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 it becomes an important element for the story. But it's also a sign of he's expected to do what he's told to do. Yeah, because he's young, not because I mean, these are rising rock stars. And I guess, again, because they haven't reached that iconic status yet, mm. it's harder to look at that. But you, you look at it and go, why are they taking orders from anybody? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my mom thought it would be a good it would be good for him to get out. So I have to bring him along on my tour. Like, <laughs> it's silly, but it's it. You're right. And it does have it does play an important role later on. But it is it is kind of a an interesting comment on on the way that they are being seen by the people in charge, I guess. Well, and it, it almost gets flip turned later on. And I do want to talk about the grandfather's storyline a little bit sure. later, but it, when we get to the point that they're at the television studio mm-hmm. and the television producer first appears and he's upset with them and he's upset with them because the grandfather has told him what to do. Right. And it's almost like he's caught in between the age generation gap of him and the grandfather and then him and the Beatles. Yeah. You know, he's older than the Beatles, so he should be telling them what to do, but the grandfather's older than him. So he's having to take this and he's upset about it. Yeah. I never noticed that before, but you're right. It, that is interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's it, the whole dynamic with age. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, our society is still kind of there, mm-hmm. but I don't know it's if it's as dramatic as it used to be. Yeah, I yeah, that's a really good point. Because I mean, 
this was kind of the birth of the teenager, right? So in the 60s, that, that was when people started marketing to teenagers and marketing to young people. And we're already well beyond that point now where, you know, we, we've established that this is a, this is an area that, you know, these kids at this age can be marketed to. And, uh, but I, I guess, you know, you might see a little bit of it, you know, the, back in the fall with the okay boomer stuff, right? Where the young kids coming up against the older generation, but it seems a little bit more, I don't know, there's, there's more cynicism there. I think right now, when you're looking at the, the hard days night now, it's, um, it seems it's different somehow. You're right. It's not quite the same. I don't, I don't know how to explain it. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. And I don't know how quite to put it into words. I mean, I've been watching other movies from this era hmm. recently for the show. Uh, you know, we, we did the graduate, we right. did, uh, Harold and Maude and, and those also kind of address that same, especially the graduate, the, the difference, the, the generation gap where, yeah. you know, the main character is expected to do, to do what he's told because they're older, not because they are smarter or wiser or more experienced, but simply because they're older, he's yeah. expected to listen. Yeah. Yeah. That whole respect your elders bent, which we really don't have anymore, I guess, is the point that where things kind of diverge. We don't like there is, but it's not the same as it was before. You didn't you you didn't you don't feel that anymore the way that you did back then. Yeah. Not as dramatically. No, I don't think so. So, yeah. So one of the early things that really cracked me up about this, it's it's kind of. And you're, you being much more of a Beatles fan than me, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but it's it's kind of a, a universal joke that Ringo is the punching bag out of the four yeah, Beatles. Poor that, Ringo. You know, but that even exists in this movie, and this is done at their uprising, you know, when they first get the fan mail, and it's like, here's a stack for the three of you, where's Ringo's? Oh, he didn't get any. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I was like, really? <laughs> and I don't know if that... Yeah, so... I mean, Ringo coming in, you know, he he joined in like 1962, I think, and uh, and was not popular initially. He was a very good drummer and a well-respected drummer in Liverpool. But Pete Best was the Beatles drummer and everybody loved Pete Best. And when he was sacked and they brought on Ringo, like there were fist fights at their shows. And like George Harrison got a, a shiner one night um, defending Ringo from uh, fans who were angry that Pete Best wasn't their drummer anymore. So I wonder if that is part of it for at least at this point. And if that, you know, they they played into that idea like, John, Paul, George, we're the, we're the Beatles, we're popular. Ringo, the late edition, isn't as popular. So we're going to put that into the film. And maybe that created the trope of Ringo being the punching bag. Like, I wonder what came first, right? Right. Yeah, that's yeah. I, I was wondering that myself. And of course, the, the film remedies it like mm-hmm. a minute later when they bring in an even bigger stack <laughs> of mail that is Ringo. So yeah. it was like, oh, Ringo's the punching bag. Even this. Or, oh, wait, no, he's not. Yeah. So, but you're right. I don't know where it came from, yeah. if this inspired it or if this was cashing in on it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really it's hard to say. And it really does carry through. If you look, every film that the Beatles did has some storyline involving Ringo being either put down or, you know, threatened in some way. And he, he was, I guess, if you look at it, like he, he was the most successful actor of, of the four of them. He was, had a, an acting career beyond this, um, like beyond his time with the Beatles. But um, so maybe there was just like an, an acceptance of the fact that we can give Ringo a little bit meatier storyline because he's 
a gifted actor or if the, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know how to explain that, but it does seem like he gets more to do in all of the films that the Beatles did, even in yellow submarine, which he wasn't even acting in. Like the story kind of kicks off with him. You know, he's the first one to encounter the magical yellow submarine in the streets of Liverpool. Right. So it's always about right. Ringo in some weird way. Yeah. And I, I, I didn't think about that, but yeah, Ringo is almost the central focus of, the beginning of yellow submarine yeah. until the band gets together. You're yeah. right. Yeah. So yeah. In- interesting. Well, and then the other thought I, I had early on in the film uh, up until, well, uh, even after they leave the train. So you have the whole first segment that has them getting on the train and then getting off the train mm-hmm. uh, and heading to their, I guess, hotel. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially through like the musical number that's on the train. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, there's a real absence of George Harrison. Like they're really focusing on Paul and John and Ringo, but I didn't feel like I was seeing much of George. So when he gets kind of an isolated scene to himself later in the film, I I was really happy that he kind of got this solo moment there. Is that the one where he's, he's meeting with the the guy who's trying to plan a TV, uh, like what's going to be popular. And he's talking about that girl. Is that the yeah, they confuse him for yeah, they confuse him for a fashionista or yeah. something, and yeah, yeah, we just and and that's just a genius scene. I love that scene so much, and he plays it so well. He's just deadpan, like I don't care about any of this. Like I don't, I'm just here because I don't know. Somebody told me to come, right? Like he's he's the perfect teenager, really, which is really fun. <laughs> yeah, and it's I mean it's obvious he's in the wrong place, yeah. and yet he's not telling them I'm in the wrong place. He's like I I th- I think there was a mistake, and they're like they're because they're older. There's that generation gap again. They're just dismissive of his opinion. And then, um, you know, he ends up, I guess, getting this this host contract shortened because he makes some offhand remark. Exactly. <laughs> He's a troublemaker, but he he might be, you know, signaling the new direction that things are going in. Yet the guy with the big calendar, like, no, 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 it's not due for another three weeks. We're good. But don't can't don't extend her contract. It's hilarious. Like it's it's so cynical about the the way that media is kind of marketed at teenagers, I think is, is the angle that they're going for is like, this is how the people in charge are going to direct people. This is what we're going to tell you what you want to buy. We're, we're the right. Don Drapers of this world. And we're going to tell you what you want. <laughs> right. And George Harrison just messes with it entirely. Yeah. And I just, I loved that solo scene because I yeah. felt like he had been, and I was reading that, the, the writer spent time with the Beatles yeah. while they were on tour mm-hmm. and then crafted the script kind of towards their individual personalities that basically he took their personalities and turned them into archetypes. Mm-hmm. So John Lennon is the smart ass. Mm-hmm. J- uh, Paul is the good looking one. Yeah. Uh, uh, George is the shy one. Well, mm-hmm. being the shy one means that you don't get as much attention. Yeah. And so I loved the fact that they gave him a solo scene yeah. and, and you're right. I mean, the brilliance of that scene, you're right. Social commentary right there about who, who dictates what teens like it ain't teens. Yeah, exactly. Even though you're sitting with George Harrison of the Beatles, who is going to dictate the entire course of the 1960s. <laughs> it's, right. it's really fun to look back on that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I guess let's talk about the grandfather storyline a little bit. It, it cracked me up how often in that first scene. So they come into the train car and this old man is there. And when they finally ask who he is, Paul says, oh, that's my grandfather. And at first I thought he was messing with them. Mm-hmm. I thought that he had no idea who the old man was. Okay. 
And then they refer to him repeatedly throughout the scene as how clean he is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, have you heard the in-joke on this? Well, kind of that he's he's kind of a... I've heard a couple different versions there, that there might have been a reference to another show that, that Wilford um, had been on earlier. Yeah, that he, he was on a show that ended up being remade in America, which was in America, it was Sanford and Son. Yes, right. So the idea that he was kind of a junk man, yeah. th- the joke is, oh, well, he's clean. Isn't he clean? Yeah. But I also like the fact, and I didn't pick up on it until a couple of times ago that I watched it. The first thing that he's doing, like he's he's reading a magazine. It's a girly magazine, first of all. So how clean can he be? He's he's a dirty old man, really. And, <laughs> and that, and that, that. Kind of recurs throughout the, like he's looking at the girl's breasts when they're at the cert club and he's, you know, pretending to be. Uh, this rich baron or whatever and he's kind of a bit of a lech and and so there's there might be that that's an, another theory that maybe has no it doesn't hold water but um but it is it is really funny that he's constantly referred to as a clean who's that little old man oh he's a very clean old man right um right and then and then Paul warns everybody that he's a villain. Yeah. And I didn't think anything of that at the time. And then you get about halfway through the movie and you realize that that was the it wasn't the clean that was important. It was that one time that Paul calls him a villain that's yeah. important because he's such a troublemaker. Yes. He just stirs things up no matter where he goes. Yeah. And he does keep disappearing. I mean, he goes off and pretends you know, he uses Ringo's invitation to the, the gambling club. He is selling bootleg pictures of them or I, the pictures are authentic, but bootleg autographs on them. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's he, he as I said earlier, he gets them in trouble with the television producer by trying to tell the producer what to do. Yeah. I mean, he is a villain he, for all intents and purposes. He is the villain of the movie. Absolutely. So I found that really interesting that it was kind of not not pushed in as much of him being a villain, but it is alluded to. And then that ends up becoming the important thing. Yeah. And, and he, he's the one who pushes the story forward with, you know, everything that he does kind of sets the plot. I guess you needed a plot to go forward. You can, you couldn't just have a series of music videos for each of these songs, right? Like that's going to be, that's going to appeal to the fans, but it's not going to have any appeal to anybody else. So yeah, having Paul's grandfather kind of mix things up and, oh yeah, let's just get Ringo to, you know, leave and then get him in trouble with the police. And let, you know, that all starts with, with the grandfather character who is definitely the antagonist, definitely a villain in this film and, and a necessary element, I think, to making the film more than just a glorified, you know, advertisement for the Beatles. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that's, I think, part of the brilliance of the script mm-hmm. is giving putting that element in. I mean, yeah. he very easily could have just made this a, a day in the life type movie about the Beatles and not really had an antagonist and just had them be smart Alex and young whippersnappers. The, the studio apparently didn't care about the movie. Right. They wanted the movie as a means to release the soundtrack to yeah. the movie and cash in on, you know, the music craze that was going on. For sure. But by putting that the grandfather character in this you you're right he does drive the story forward he's what compels things to move and that's a brilliant bit of writing it really is and and when you think about other um i guess music films that have come out like if you think of elvis right all of elvis's music films that he'd done in the 50s um they always had a love interest and that was something that they probably didn't want to have shoehorned in for the beatles um just because they wanted them to appeal to 
young girls. And so if they were suddenly taken in a, in a film with love interests, it wouldn't be appealing anymore. So it's, it's kind of bucking a trend that had already been established in the short time that rock and roll had been, you know, what it was that trend of we're going to have our main star and have a love interest. And that's going to, that's going to be what carries the story forward. Well, in a hard day's night, they don't do that. They do something completely different, which makes it different and makes it interesting. And all of the things that I think give it that staying power in our culture, I think, I don't know. No, I, I agree with you. I have a confession though. I have never seen an Elvis Presley movie. So I don't have that as a point of comparison. (laughs) I'm just going by the, by what I think happens in a, in an Elvis and Margaret film, like, you know, what, what I think happens, but (laughs) <laughs> maybe i'm way wrong i don't know but well no i mean you you bring up a really good point and again it makes me reflect on what tom hanks did with that thing you do mm-hmm. about the value of making the band members seem attainable yeah you know that you want to show them being chased by all these young women mm-hmm. so that teens will do that. it's almost kind of representative of that scene with with george yeah. where the studio is dictating what happens so that it will happen. Yes, exactly. Which then makes it a really interesting commentary that kind of folds into itself. So that's, yee. Yeah, it's a lot more <laughs> complex when you start talking about it. These are things I had never even thought about before. I'm so glad we're having this conversation. This is really cool. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, it's funny because I watched it and I had to admit I was, it was losing my attention in a couple of places. I found myself picking up my phone, which I hate doing when I'm watching a movie. Yeah. And I, I, I really forced myself to put it down. But once I was done watching it, the more I reflect back on it, mm-hmm. the more depth I'm, I'm seeing in it and little things like the addition of the grandfather, adding a, a story, making the story happen yeah. is like, it really is clever filmmaking. Yeah. And I think that really, I mean, I'm a fan of Richard Lester, so it's hard for me to be objective about it, but I think he's a, he's a good filmmaker. And I think he does, he does really well when it comes to this kind of, this kind of story and um, the humor and um, the way that he films too is really interesting. Like the, the things that he does um, with the camera, I think there, there are a lot of, I agree with you. There are places where it, it kind of lags, but, um, but on the whole, I think that uh, it's just a nice, almost a magical bringing together of a bunch of different talents that make it what it is. So it, it does stand out um, for me in that way. And I'm Jane. And we have a brand new podcast called Bedknobs and Broom Flicks, where we talk about witches of the entertainment world. From the horror movies Warlock, Suspiria, The Witch, and The Blair Witch Project. To the more comedic or whimsical, such as Harry Potter, Hocus Pocus, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and The Blair Witch Project. No movie, TV show, or book is off limits. All witches, man witches, sorry warlocks, we're not calling you that. Witches brews, witches of history, familiars, and witch-like activity will be discussed as we laugh and have fun talking about the wonderful world of witches. So join us every other week for some fun witchy talk. All witches welcome. So let me ask you, what's your favorite scene from this movie? Um, that's a really good question. There are so many, I mean, I, I've always loved the scene where, where Ringo goes walkabout and ends up, um, 
you know, traipsing down by the river and uh, getting in trouble with the cops when he goes to the pub and all that stuff. Like that always seems like a very poignant moment. It's not really played for laughs. It's kind of, I always felt bad for Ringo that he was kind of ignored and left to wander and, and didn't really have a place. But the part in the pub where he, you know, drops his coins down mm-hmm. on the table that they're playing and then he his beer gets smashed by the the peg and and uh i don't even know what that game is called and then he's throwing darts like that was a brilliant comedic scene yes in the middle of what was a kind of a very soulful like what you were talking about about the cinematography when he's walking down with the kid yeah and suddenly the camera is on the kid's shoes yeah And it's like, that's a weird choice, but I like it. Yeah. Like it really feels like it's a, it's a shot we've seen countless times in so many films. It's not like this is the first time that it was been, that it was done, but I think that there was a kind of an experimentation there. The fact even that there was a kid that would be talking, you're doing a film about the Beatles, the Beatles are the focus. And yet Ringo's going to have this long drawn out conversation with a 10 year old and, and have that be a, a moment of realization for him almost that they're both uh, I forget what he calls them, what they call themselves, but that they're both like, you know, bunking off for the day. Right. And it's that in itself is kind of revolutionary in a weird way. Isn't it? Like, I don't know. Yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's such an interesting perspective on, Mm-hmm. on this and uh, yeah mm-hmm. i mean the, the ringo scenes were really good i, I liked the it, it's just a, a quick little snippet but when they're returning i think it and again this is the only time i've seen it so correct me if i'm wrong sure. but they're returning from one of the clubs one of the times that they had gone out and they're they're getting back to their dressing room and john stops and is flirting with this girl out in the hall yes about whether or not he looks like john lennon yeah and the way that scene played, just the chemistry between the two of them was so tangible in just this tiny little scene. And and what I love is a, a, a current rock doc or something might try to grow that into like an important relationship or she comes back later in the story somehow. And it's just this one fleeting moment that's really brilliant and beautiful on screen. Yeah. And it's acted well and it's, and it ends funny where where he like kind of pulls his hat down and is like, well, she looks like more like him than I do or whatever he says. And like, it's, there are so many beats that are hit perfectly in that scene. It, that definitely is a shining standout moment. For sure, 100%. Yeah. yeah. I, so being a Beatles fan, you might also be able to correct me on this because there was a line of dialogue. One of my f- friends who I, I I thought was a huge Beatles fan had told me years ago, wow. and then I watched this movie and he was wrong about it. Oh, okay. And it was in the press conference scene where they're asking the questions. And there's some good quips in <laughs> yes. that press scene. You know, uh, how did you find America? Turn left at Greenland. Right. I loved that. But- <laughs> At one point, they ask, what do you call that hairstyle? Yeah. And in the movie, they said, George, right? Uh, I Well, George calls it Arthur. Arthur. No, they call it, they said Arthur. Yeah. yeah. In the movie, they say Arthur. Yeah. And my friend had told me years ago that their answer was Harold. Oh. Have you ever heard them say that? You know, now that you said it, that does ring some bells. And now I'm having like a... Mandela moment like did that change somewhere like what happened because that does feel like that might have happened but it's definitely Arthur like I noticed that too this time 
Weird. So maybe it's maybe they said that some other time and uh, my friend was quoting maybe. that. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a weird question to ask of no, you, but no, you're the Beatles fan. <laughs> so the, the the first real musical number we get, I guess, aside from the opening, yeah. really was kind of one of those surreal moments in how it uh, uh, plays out because they're they're on the train and they've all kind of moved the cargo hold and they're playing cards and the song comes in. And then suddenly they're just playing instruments on the train. Yeah. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It just happens. It is a surreal moment. It's kind of um, that, you know, going from, ah, uh, oh, now the term, the the film term is is escaping me, but where the music is part of the scene or whether it's it's something that the that only the audience hears, like that blurring of that distinction for for this scene is really keen, but it but it makes it, I don't know. It makes it kind of magical in a way. I don't know. And, and it's 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 kind of a fun scene to have the girls there. And then all of a sudden, one of them is in that little caged area. But then she's looking at them, watching them playing cards again. Like there's no continuity, but it's meant to be that way. It's really, yeah, it's 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 kind of a magical scene. I don't know. I like that one, too. That would be another favorite, I guess. I forgot about that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think that scene kind of reflects what I expected more of the movie to sure. be when I was kind of going into it with a little trepidation. Yeah. So when I saw that, I took note and was like, okay, this is a little ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And then I realized later on, well, no, that's just an isolated choice by the director, yeah. but it's not indicative of the film as a whole. No, because I think every other musical number really has a purpose like they're rehearsing or they're doing a sound check or there's there's like a reason for it this one there isn't and i guess can't buy me love there's no real reason but they're also not singing that that's just the song that's right over the scene so maybe it's uh isolated yeah this one is really a, a different kind of um it has that different feel to it it's interesting that it's the first one so it might put people off you're right if they were expecting that um, and then it had to have it confirmed like 15 minutes into the film, right? It would be off-putting maybe. Yeah. Yeah. The the can't buy me love kind of threw me because, you know, of course I, I, I know that scene, mm-hmm. but then it plays a second time later on in the film right. when they're running from the police yes. and it's, it's that same style, but it's done a second time in the film. And I was like, well, that's odd because they haven't repeated any other song. No. And yet this one they're bringing back. And it, it makes me wonder if that, I mean, it, were they planning for that to be the first single? Was it going to be like the, they thought this was going to be the knockout hit. So we're going to feature it twice. Like, I don't know what the decision making process was like going into that, but, but you're right. I did see that, um, that can't buy me love wasn't supposed to be the music over that first scene that okay. they, they changed it to that one. Okay. Um, yeah. that it originally it was another song and I don't have it in front of me as to what it was, okay. but they decided that it didn't match the tone the way they wanted. So they changed it. Okay. But then again, a- after that second time, can't buy me love plays, we get into their actual performance mm-hmm. on the TV show or, or concert, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And essentially at that point, they're reprising every song from the movie. Right. So it almost makes sense except for the fact that can't buy me love is not in that performance environment either time that is played. Right. Yeah. It's almost like a, like a recap of everything that we've seen. We're going to see like a snippet of each song. Yeah, exactly. So what, what am I not talking about? What am I, as somebody who's new to the movie, what have I missed? That's so, so brilliant about this. Um, 
I think one of the things that people either love it or they don't get it is the humor. And and I think we talked about it a bit, but I just maybe want to highlight it again, like how funny the movie actually is. It really does feel like there's, um, even though it's scripted, most of the film is scripted, it feels like it's very true to the actual Beatles. Like if you watch the interviews that they gave, the press conferences that they gave, this is how they acted. So kudos to the writer, Alan Owen, for like capturing that and putting it into, you know, into a script format. Um, but it really is really blisteringly funny in a, in a lot of places, you know, you know, where the they're breaking off to visit or to go look for Ringo and they, they all go off in a clump and John goes, I think we're a limited uh, limited company or something is, you know, which was funny, like at the time, because they were becoming a limited company um, as the Beatles, but they can't do anything by themselves. They, you know, like it's, it just, there's so many laugh out loud moments that if you are only watching it once, or maybe you're watching it for the first time and you don't, can't understand what they're saying, like you'll miss it. There's a lot of really funny humor in there that, um, as a Beatles fan, I really appreciate, but even as like a fan of, of comedies, it's, it's up there as one of the funniest movies that I laugh every time I watch it. Yeah. The, the, the one scene that really, I'm still trying to get my head around and I, I laughed at it, but it, again, I, I keep using the word absurd, but it almost is, is the, the bathroom scene yes. <laughs> where Paul is showing their stage manager or whoever he is how to shave by putting shaving cream on the mirror while john lennon is in the bathtub pretending to be german yeah and getting torpedoed and then going down the drain but then appearing at the door when norm comes in to like roust him and get him out the door right like it's (laughs) it is absurd it's the weirdest (laughs) gene it's very strange and the fact that they're that shake can't shave he's never used a straight razor because he comes from a long line of electricians like that's his reason why he's never shaved with a blade before it's just right ridiculous stuff yeah i mean that's (laughs) and and some of those jokes i mean that that that, that's only said the one time but like the ongoing feud between the two managers about him being tall yeah (laughs) which is also started by paul's grandfather so Right, right. That's that's true. Yeah, he is the 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 villain here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's you're right. I mean, it's, it is a very funny movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I did particularly like John Lennon, some of John Lennon quips. But then I, I've always been partial to Lennon yeah. as you know the, as a Beatle. So, yeah. uh, but his his wry humor in some of the the scenes just fit the bill for me perfectly. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, let's head on to the uh, end credits here. First up, we've got The Algorithm Says. This is kind of a lightning round of other movies that, based on various algorithms, they say you might like because you liked A Hard Day's Night. Okay. So this is kind of a lightning round as far as responses. You like them. You don't like them. You don't see how they're connected or you haven't seen them. You know, however. Okay. All right. I'm ready. And your list starts pretty much predictable and then moves to some very strange picks. So we'll see how how it goes. All right. So first up, help. Oh, yeah. I, obviously, help is is, is the spiritual uh, successor to this film. Even if it doesn't have the the humor and the fun necessarily that the a hard day's night does. Um, obviously, if you like a hard day's night, you'll like help. Okay, yellow submarine. Yeah, I definitely would see. I think at that point, if you're liking the Beatles, you'll like Yellow Submarine. It's like you said, it's not the best Beatles film, but yeah, I definitely could see why the algorithm picked that one. <laughs> 
do you like Yellow Submarine? I do. I think it's it's I show it to my niece and nephew. Like it's not one that I'll pick to watch on a Saturday afternoon. But you know, if there's a right. kid in my life, I'll show it to them. Right. So. Gotcha. Okay. Um, living in the material world. Oh, um, that's a is that a documentary? That is a uh, a Martin Scorsese documentary about George Harrison. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously that it, it fits because it's George Harrison. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think I've seen it, though. I've seen parts of it, but I've never seen the whole thing. So I can't speak to the quality or anything. But it's George Harrison. It's it's going to be appealing to Beatles fans for sure. Yeah. Okay. So. What's up, Doc? What's up, Doc? I, I'm not familiar at all with that one. It's a Barbara Streisand movie. Okay. <laughs> I told you your list your list starts out predictable and yeah. starts getting weird. Is it is it from the sixties or is it uh, I believe so, okay. yeah. Okay. Interesting. Well I'm I'm gonna assume it's it's funny. Maybe that's why the, the algorithm chose it. So I'll have to I'm gonna take notes from this so then I go and watch I'll I'll line up my Netflix queue for the next week. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Tommy. Ah, uh, okay. The who, right? So obviously, right. yeah, that makes sense. Again, haven't seen it, so can't speak to it. But uh, I could see why the algorithm chose uh, the who. All right. That thing you do. Obviously, again, that's a brilliant film, isn't it? Oh my! God. I love that movie so much. <laughs> I just watched it like last weekend, or after Adam Schlesinger passed away. It was like, oh, which I'm heartbroken about. I know. So it's like, yeah, definitely. It's it that again totally owes a debt to a Hard Day's Night for sure. Well, and, I, and not to derail my own train here, I, I didn't even realize that he had done the music for that thing you do. I knew him from Fountains of Wayne, of which I was a big fan of. Yeah. And then I find out he did music for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and he did that thing you do. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh my God, this guy is half of my entertainment lately is this guy. Yep. Yeah. He does. He did such a brilliant job with the music. So yeah. sad. Yep. All right. Now we get into the really weird ones. Okay. Vertigo. Okay, that I don't see how they picked that algorithm, like how the algorithm fit that in. I love Vertigo. Vertigo is a great film. Interesting choice. Wow, that is obscure. Uh, To Have and Have Not, which is Bogart and Bacall. Okay, again, wow, this is (laughs) is the algorithm drinking? (laughs) (laughs) I made that comment on another show about the algorithm. Sometimes it gets weird. Uh, Rope. Okay, another Hitchcock one, right? Uh, Probably my favorite Hitchcock yes, one, yeah. Definitely. Interesting. All right, and then the last one is Back to the Future. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> I I love that film, too. So I guess, I guess the algorithm didn't hit most of the marks, but those are some weird choices. Very interesting algorithm says this time. Yeah. All right. <laughs> We always end with a pop quiz for multiple choice questions based on the movie. Are you ready? I'm ready. I have the feeling you're going to end up being one of those who doesn't even let me read the uh, answers. Oh, I'll be nice. I'll let you read. Go for it. (laughs) No, it's fine. If you know the answer, chime in. All right, here we go. Uh, The Le Circle Gambling Club that Ringo is invited to and subsequently Paul's grandfather visits also served as the debut film location for another prominent British figure two years earlier. Who was it? Oh, my gosh. A, Doctor Who, B, James Bond, C, Mary Poppins, or D, Paddington Bear? I'm going to guess James Bond. Yep. It is the first location of Doctor No, which is the first James Bond film. Brilliant. 
Uh, number two, due to outside circumstances, two different Beatles were absent at different times of filming of A Hard Day's Night. Which two? A, John and Paul. B, Paul and George. C, George and Ringo. Or D, Ringo and John. I know it was John. I know he was one of them because he was he had his book signing or his book launch was on the day they were filming the Camp Ami Love sequence. Correct. But the other two... I'm going to guess Ringo and John. No, it no. was John and Paul. Darn Paul it. was involved in some sort of accident and had to miss a few days filming. Okay. And so they, they, they had a, a fill in who gets a reference in the magical mystery tour album. Okay. All right. Uh, number three, which Beatle was responsible for the title of the film, which actually came into being prior to then the song being written. A Paul B John C George or D Ringo. That was Ringo, right? It was Ringo, yeah. So anybody who says Ringo never did anything for the band, right there, he came up with the name of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) All right, last one. Actress Patty Boyd has the distinction of appearing in three different places in the first act. However, the film brought about an even more distinct connection to the Beatles. What was it? A, she became John Lennon's assistant. B, she became Paul McCartney's manager. C, she became George Harrison's wife, or D, she became Ringo Starr's roadie. She was George Harrison's first wife. She was, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Good job on those. Awesome. Okay, so where can people find you? What do you want to promote? Um. Well, uh, my husband and I have a podcast of our own, which we're kind of very different from from this. We're looking at William Shakespeare and the, the collected works of William Shakespeare. We're reading through a play a month and trying to get through the collected works that way. So you can find us on Twitter, uh, Facebook. We're called the Bix Pod. So if you if you look us up, we're, I think, one of like four podcasts about Shakespeare. So it's not like we're going to be very hard to find. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, that's where that's where you can find us. And I, I have to admit, I forgot to ask you that before we got going. So I haven't checked out your podcast yet. But I love Shakespeare. That's why I taught high school was so I could teach Shakespeare. Very cool. And that's why I br- try and bring it in wherever I can, you know, teaching kids how to write sonnets or whatever, because Shakespeare is a lot of fun. There's a lot of a lot of cool stuff to talk about there. So absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and introducing me to A Hard Day's Night. This has been a blast to talk with you about this movie. Oh, well, thank you for asking me on. And I'm so glad that you were able to watch it. And again, that we could have this amazing conversation. It's given me a lot to think about, for sure. So that does it for this week. But you can keep the conversation going throughout the week on social media. Share your thoughts about A Hard Day's Night or maybe tell me about a movie you'd like to come on the show and talk about. You can find me at Talon Hess on Twitter or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter. On Facebook, we're at Have Not Seen This Podcast, or you can always email me at Have Not Seen This at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next week's episode. Now, we'll depart from this week's film about a classic 60s rock band to a mockumentary about an 80s heavy metal band. Be sure to check it out because this episode is going to go to 11. This podcast is available through all major podcast sources. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, as is just sharing the podcast with a friend and spreading the love. And if you like World of Warcraft or other Blizzard games, be sure to check out my other podcast, Citizens of Azeroth, a World of Warcraft podcast, also available through all major podcast sources. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Lindsay for providing this week's conversation. Until next week, I'm Rafe Telsch, and this has been Have Not Seen This.